you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 13, as we continue to walk through uh, 1 Samuel together. If you are with us last Lord's Day, uh, we came to a point where Samuel gave his farewell address to the people. We are transitioning in this book from the period of the judges to the period of the kings, and, and as Samuel gave his farewell address, he shared these words in verses 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. And so what we saw there is that Saul had this opportunity to lead the people in serving the Lord, fearing the Lord, and obeying the commandments of the Lord. But as we'll see in the very next chapter, the one we're going to look at today, 1 Samuel 13, Saul fails to do this. And it has devastating consequences on his kingdom rule. And so we're going to look at chapter 13 in its entirety, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us. And this is what God's holy word says. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. 
For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Orpha in the land of Shuel. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, at least the Hebrews make themselves swords and spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel and for the plowshares, and for the mattocks, a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. If you would pray with me. Father God, there are unfamiliar places and unfamiliar names, but a very familiar theme that we see in your word today, and that is the theme of obedience. That is the call on our lives to hear your word and obey what it says, not to reinterpret it, not to adjust it to our own terms and our own liking. So, Father, we pray as we walk through this text together today that you might help us to better understand it, to better live according to it, to repent and have faith, and to understand and live by the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We have a lot of phobias in our world today. You may know that word phobia very well. It comes from a Greek word meaning morbid fear. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, approximately 10% of adults have some type of phobia. And depending on which list you look at, it seems there are hundreds upon hundreds of phobias. And and do phobias, they're being addressed every day. Now, some of the more familiar ones that perhaps some of us have struggled with. uh, Claustrophobia, that's the fear of Confined spaces, most of us are aware of that one, Uh, mostly from a popular movie, perhaps you're familiar with arachnophobia, Uh, that's the fear of spiders, and then there are some very unique ones, and I probably will not pronounce these correctly, but I'll attempt, there's didascalineophobia, anyone want to guess what that is? Didascalineophobia, that's the fear of going to school. Now, whatever the opposite of that is, is probably what people have today with all the quarantines and shutdowns, or maybe among parents and grandparents, the fear of children not going to school. But uh, Then there's pantheraphobia. That is the fear of your mother-in-law. 
can just say you have a clinical phobia there. Uh, bogey phobia, the fear of the boogeyman. There is ecclesiophobia, which I'm assuming nobody here suffers from. That is the fear of the church. And I hope you don't have this one. Homileophobia. That is the fear of sermons. But if you do have that, I appreciate you overcoming your fear to be here with us today. Uh, fears upon fears. I'm sure that by the end of 2020, we'll have a word for the fear of masks and the fear of social distancing and the fear of coronavirus and so many other things. And while we may not suffer from those fears or may not have a clinical phobia, fear is something we all deal with. And if you're not scared and you don't have fear, then just turn on the evening news and someone will tell you all the things you should be scared of and all the fears you should have. We seem to live in a culture uh, that is really fixated on fear and all the reasons and ways we should respond to these fears. And so as God's people, we need to come to God's word to better understand, well, what should we really be afraid of and how should we respond to fear? Because in God's word, fear is not always a bad thing. Now, we addressed this last week as we talked about the fear of the Lord. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we are to have a right, reverent fear of God. And this right, reverent fear of God then leads us to obey his word and his commands and to walk by faith and not by sight. But when we don't have a right, reverent fear of God, when our fear seems to be of worldly things and of other people, then we tend to do the exact opposite. Rather than walk by faith, we walk by sight. Rather than obey the commands of God, we tend to disobey the commands of God because we just try to follow our own hearts, which the Scripture tells us is deceitful above all things. And so as we consider how we are to rightly respond to fear it's fitting that we look at first samuel 13 because what we find here is fear what we find in saul who's been called while he was out looking for his father's donkeys and has that encounter with samuel and is anointed the king and then brought before the people and proclaimed the king and then has that ceremony there at gilgal over and over again he's pronounced as king before the people he leads the people into battle against the ammonites he he sees victory there and he declares that victory in the name of the lord and yet he too was someone who struggled with fear and we see that fear today as now the tables have turned. Now it seems his people are outnumbered. Now he feels overwhelmed by the Philistines. And he responds in fear. And that fear leads him to make a very, very foolish decision that will affect his reign and his kingdom forever moving forward. And so as we walk through this passage, I want us to think about fear and how we should respond to it or not respond to it as we consider God's words. So we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. Uh, the reminder that fear often leads to anxiety. Fear often leads to anxiety. Now, just a, a side note, as we start out in our study here, you may have noticed as I was reading verse 1, depending on what translation you have, that there were some very different numbers. 
Uh, verse 1 is a problematic verse for us, and it's translated very differently uh, among different Bible translations. For example, the NIV says Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, the King James says Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, and then it continues. Uh, the ESV that I read today says Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, dot, dot, dot. But if you have an earlier ESV, which I have a, an earlier translation, the ESV, actually what's there is closer to what's actually in the Hebrew language. And what's in the Hebrew language for this passage is Saul was blank years old and he reigned for something in two years over Israel. There's blanks in the text there. And we can spend a lot of time on that, as I did this week, or I can simply tell you this. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly what was supposed to go there, and, and God in his providence has not allowed us to know. And so different translators have tried to figure that out. But it seems the indication uh, is that this is early in Saul's reign. Now, we know that Saul was a young man when he went out looking for his father's donkeys, but we don't know the exact timeline of all, how all these things play out. It's easy for us when we're reading the text and we go from chapter 10 to 11 to 12 to 13 to just imagine we're walking through the series of weeks or months. But really there are years taking place here because by the time we get to chapter 13, however old Saul is and however many years he's already reigned and would reign, at this point we know he has an adult son, Jonathan, uh, who is leading an attack against a garrison of Philistines. So we're not sure exactly where that plays in the timeline, but what we know is that in the biblical account of Saul's reign, this comes early. This really marks him early on. It seems that he starts out well. He starts out at that point where when there's that first victory and the people are wanting to lift his name on high, he's very quick to say, no, let's lift the Lord's name on high. It's the Lord who gave victory here. But yet very soon after that, at least in the way the biblical account is given to us, we see this failure, and this failure begins with fear. And so with that, as we continue the text there, we see here that Saul is assembling his army. Now remember, Israel's cry for a king. Remember what it is they said when they said they wanted a king. And when you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, they said, our king will go out before us and fight our battles. So they had this idea that they would be like other nations and that their king would go out before them and the king would fight those battles for them. But you'll remember what Samuel had already warned them of in 1 Samuel 8. He said, well, there'll be battles, no doubt. But he's going to take your sons and he's going to enlist them to fight these battles. Well, we're getting out of 1 Samuel 13 and we see that Samuel's prophetic word was right. Saul is building an army, and it's not an army of one. <laughs> and he is going out and he is gathering the sons of the Israelites, and they are going to be his army. And as he's doing that, his son Jonathan is leading more that have been gathered to fight in battle. And we read there in verses 3 and 4 uh, that they go into battle, Jonathan, his son, and this group that he's leading, and they defeat a Philistine garrison at Geba. And the news of this defeat spreads quickly. In fact, Saul seems to want to make sure the news spreads and that he gets credit for it. <laughs> and he says, make sure everybody knows that, that I've defeated them. Now, whether this is an issue that he's taking credit or that's just the way things were, we don't know. But we know that the word is getting out among the Israelites and not just the Israelites. 
the word is also getting out to the Philistines. And as the Philistines hear this word of this defeat, well, they are enraged. And so the Philistines start to gather their number, and they're now going to come out against the Israelites. And, and notice as we read the number of their chariots and their horsemen and their troops. Verse 5, their troops were like the sand on the seashore in multitude. I mean, just think about that. that. That picture that we're being given in the text here. If you've ever been to the coast and you've reached down, you, you've picked up a hand of sand. Can you even number that? And then you consider the vastness of all the sand. I mean, the picture here that we're being given in 1 Samuel is that there is this enormous army now that is being raised up by the Philistines that's now going to come against the Israelites. And the Israelites are overwhelmed by this to the point that they are scared and they are hiding. In fact, the text makes the point that pretty much anything they could hide in, they did hide in. They ran in fear. They were scattered. And why did they scatter? They scattered because they were anxious and they were overwhelmed. And that's often where fear takes us. I mean, you remember what had happened just two chapters before in 1 Samuel 11. As you had the Ammonites coming against just that region of Israel. And as those people were scared, but God brought them salvation and brought them deliverance. And they were outnumbered, but God filled Saul with his spirit and he raised up an army and they went in and it was the Ammonites that were conquered and were scattered. You think about the history of God's people and all the times that they've been outnumbered, all the times the odds have been against them, and time after time after time, God was their great deliverer. But the Israelites don't seem to be focused on that now. They're focused more on their fear and on their worry. And they are anxious and they are scared. And that is so often where our fear leads us as well. When we don't go to God in our fear, when we don't trust in God with our fear, when we're left to ourselves, we can easily be overcome by anxiety and worry. And so how do we counter that? Well, we counter that by coming to the Word of God. This is our daily bread. And God's word has much to say about fear and anxiety and worry. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we find that in our anxiety, we are to pray. And we are to thank God in the midst of our anxiety and our worry. And what does the scripture tell us? That there is a peace of God that surpasses all human understanding. It doesn't make sense to the world around us. But this peace of God. God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And friends, if you have been anxious in recent days, if you have been worried in recent days, what you need and what I need is our God to guard our hearts and our minds. And we get that when we come to God through prayer. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Well, what a wonderful reminder to us that we cast our anxieties on God, not as a burden on Him. I mean, you think about how often we feel like we are burdening someone else to share our anxiety with them. But the biblical text is so clear to us that God is not burdened by our anxieties. God cares for us and He wants us to cast our anxieties on Him. He cares for us. John 14, verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What do we need in the midst of our anxiety? We need this peace. And Jesus promises this peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The consistent command in the scripture is that when we are fearful, when we are anxious, when we are worried, that we are to take those anxieties to God, that we are to pray, that we are to thank God even in the midst of our anxious circumstances. And in return, we receive the peace of God. He guards our hearts. He guards our minds. And when we don't do that, when we try to hold on to those things, when we try to fix them ourselves, then often, rather than being filled with peace, we're just filled with anxiety and worry. And that anxiety and worry grow and grow and grow, which then leads us to the second point there in your outline. Anxiety often leads us to foolish decisions. And that's exactly what we see here with King Saul. So Saul is at Gilgal with the people who didn't go into hiding, but now those people are scattering. And so he's watched his army diminish. And now he's watching what's left scatter. And so now he is anxious to the point that he is about to make a foolish decision because rather than go to God and pray and seek God, rather than listen to the commands that God has already given him in regards to how sacrifices were to be offered, well, he is going to take matters into his own hands. Verse 8 says that Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to come. And we don't know exactly what's taking place here, what the conversation has been, but it's likely similar to what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 10 when Saul was first anointed king before the people. Samuel said to him then, Go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And so there seems to be an indication here that Samuel was telling Saul that he was going to be active in some way in these offerings. He was going to be shown what to do. And we know in the biblical record moving forward, there are times when kings are involved in offering these offerings. But whatever the case here, Saul was supposed to wait. Saul wasn't supposed to do this on his own. He had been commanded by God through Samuel not to move forward until Samuel was present. But he is scared, and he is anxious, and he takes matters into his own hand. Because he's the king. And so often we see that kingship is prone to this kind of pride. One example from history, James VI of Scotland was notoriously rude when attending worship services. 
And there was one account that I read about when he was seated in his gallery with several from his court. And Robert Bruce was preaching. And as Bruce was preaching, uh, James would do what he so often would do. He would turn and just start talking to the people around him. Now, this is hard to imagine for us today. Because none of us would ever do something like this. But just go with me for a second. It's the 1500s. You know, things were different. So here's the king in his high place of authority and esteem. He's just talking to the people around him. So what does Bruce do as he's preaching? He just stops. And he stares. <laughs> and James goes silent. And so then Bruce begins to preach again. But after a few minutes, well, James starts talking again. And the king's talking to his court. And so Bruce stops. And he stares at James. Well, this goes on through a series of three or four times until finally Bruce looks at the king and he says this. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. King the lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. And it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. And with that, the king stopped and the king listened. But kings need this reminder. Kings often forget that they are subjects to a greater authority. And that seems to be the case here with Saul. Because Saul is now at a point where he has waited uh, the appointed seven days, but maybe not so far into the seventh day. Perhaps his expectations were, as soon as that seventh day hits, well, here's Samuel and here's these offering. Perhaps he's watching as his troops are packing their things and leaving and scattering. And there's not going to be time to wait until Samuel gets there. Because by the time the sun goes down, it will be Saul and Saul alone. And so in his fear and in his anxiety and in his worry, he decides to offer these offerings on his own without Samuel. He forgets that he is a man under authority, that he is a king under a greater king. And as soon as he does, what happens? Well, it seems that no sooner does he offer this sacrifice than here's Samuel. And he's come at the appointed time. But Saul had jumped the gun. He had grown impatient. And so notice there in verses 10 through 12 what happens. Samuel immediately confronts Saul. And notice how Saul just offers excuses. <laughs> well, it's the people's fault. Yeah, they were scattering. And Samuel, it's your fault. You, you weren't here yet. It's the Philistines' fault. They're coming against me and they're going to conquer us. And so notice this language here. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. It would seem here that Saul is very aware of his own guilt. But he's just trying to excuse himself out of it. And he's trying to make himself the victim. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, how often are we confronted in sin and we respond the same way? I mean, how often are we called out in something we've done wrong? And our first response is not one of humility, but it's one of pride. How often do we make excuses for our sin? How often do we blame others? I mean, this is the pattern since the garden. Adam is confronted by God in his sin, and what does Adam say? 
Well, it's not my fault. It's her fault. She's the one that gave me this fruit. And actually, God, it's your fault because you're the one who gave her to me. And we see this pattern repeated over and over and over again through the Scripture. Saul points the finger at someone else, and so do we. But notice how Samuel responds, the same way that the Scripture responds to us when we start to blame everyone else. We're called out in our foolishness. Verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. He tells him he's broken God's command and he has lost God's favor. Now, if we're honest here, does that seem harsh? I mean, we don't have a picture here of Saul cursing God. Uh, We don't have a picture here of Saul saying, Okay, I want you guys to take all of uh, the gold that you have, and we're going to melt it down, and we're going to form it into the image of a golden calf, and we'll just worship that for a while, and maybe that'll bless us. Saul in this picture is not murderous. In fact, what does Saul want to do? He wants God to bless the army so they can go to battle, and he realizes they can't go to battle unless God blesses the army. Does it seem a bit harsh that his kingdom would be taken from him? John Wesley often wrote notes in his Bible. And beside this passage, he wrote this, a question. Is there such thing as a little sin? That's really the question, isn't it? That the reason we might think this harsh is the same reason we might think the consequence in the garden was harsh. I mean, Adam did not kill Eve. Eve did not kill Adam. They did not conspire together to to invent a new religion God said don't eat this fruit and they ate it and look at all that came from that and the reason we didn't think of that as harsh we tend to think of our sin as small Wesley asked that question in in the margin of his Bible is there any such thing as a little sin and then under that question he wrote Only if there's such thing as a little God. Friends, there are no little sins. Because we don't serve a little God. And every sin is an offense against our holy God. Every sin that we commit in the millisecond it takes for it to enter into our mind and we dwell on it. Every single one of those sins. It's an offense against the holiness of our Creator. The Scripture is clear. There are no insignificant sins. There are no little sins. The reason we tend to think this way is because we have an elevated view of ourself. And we have a diminished view of God. And what we need in our churches What we need in our lives, what we need from our pulpits today is an elevated view of God and a realistic view of ourselves that all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short. That that doesn't mean that we're running a marathon and we collapsed a few feet from the finish line. That means that we are so far short And so far separated, there is nothing we could ever do in our human effort to overcome 
this gulf between us and God, the debt that we owe for our sin, the wrath that we rightly deserve. There are no insignificant sins. There are no little sins. We read in the scripture, the wages of sin is death. Sin, as I've said many times, and I'm sure you've heard others say it as well, it will always cost you more than you thought you would ever pay. It will take you farther than you ever thought you would go. It's because there are no little sins. And in this offense of God, we see the beauty of the gospel. Because it is only when we right under, rightly understand how we have sinned and we have fallen short of God's glory and we do deserve the wages of sin, death, that we can then truly understand, appreciate, and respond to the free offer of the gospel. That God certainly demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you have gone to this church for any period of time, I hope that you've heard me say that before. I will often quote the Romans road. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. God demonstrates his love toward us. And when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then he will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead. He will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if as I'm sharing that, you check out. As I'm sharing that, if you think, oh yeah, I've, I've heard this before. As I'm sharing that, if, you, if your mind begins to wander, what does that say about the condition of your soul? I'm not here this morning to comfort you. <laughs> if, friend, if that's something that you tend to zone out to then wake up and hear the call of God you have the opportunity this day to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ and a day is soon coming when you will stand before God in judgment and you my friend will stand in a greater judgment because you have heard the gospel and it has been clearly shared with you. And if in your pride, in your foolishness, you don't respond to it, then friend, there is no hope for you. Your only hope is to turn to Christ. Your only hope is to trust in Christ. But as long as you're encapsulated by the fear and the anxiety and the worry that this world brings, then, then you're not going to find that hope. And that's what we see here. Point three, foolish decisions often result in failure and in hopelessness. Samuel turns to Saul and says these words to him in verse 14. Your kingdom shall not continue. I mean, God's kingdom will. We've already seen that in God's word. His kingdom's going to move forward. But what does he say to Saul? Saul, you're not going to be a part of it. And with that, Samuel leaves Saul. Saul, who previously had an army of thousands upon thousands, now can barely muster up hundreds. 
And the Philistines now are coming in large numbers. And this situation now seems so hopeless. And to make matters worse, the Philistines have actually gone in and it seems somehow taken out all the blacksmiths from the Israelites so that they can't even get their swords sharpened. And they can't even get their weapons ready for battle unless they come groveling to the Philistines. What shame and what hopelessness. And that is how the chapter ends. (laughs) In a shameful, hopeless situation. But friends, that's not how the Bible ends. Which brings us to that last point there in your notes. Failure and hopelessness are often the backdrop for God's deliverance. And so as we read 1 Samuel 13, if that's all we've got and we end on that final verse, we don't have a lot of hope. But that's not all we have because we know the whole story. And as we read this through the lens of the whole story, well, then we have great hope. One commentator I read this week said it this way. Chapter 13 of 1 Samuel highlights the theme of Israel's helplessness. And that's why alert Bible readers are not hopeless about Israel's hopelessness. They have seen it too often before. The total helplessness of God's people proves to be the backdrop for Yahweh's deliverance. You hear that? That the total helplessness of God's people proves to be the backdrop of Yahweh's deliverance. God is done with Saul, but God's not done with his people. God is never done with his people. And friends, you need to know that today. And when you struggle with anxiety and worry and hopelessness, when you are fearful because of the world we live in today, you need to remember this. God is not done with you, and God is not done with me. And therefore, we have reason to hope. We may be filled with a world full of hopelessness, but if our faith is in Jesus Christ, we have every reason to have great hope. Because he's not done yet. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. He's not done with Bloomfield Baptist Church. He's not done with us yet. So let's trust in him. And let's be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work he's called us to do. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. For I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that day is not here yet. It may be in five minutes. It may be in five days. It may be in five months, five years, five decades. I don't know. But that day is not here yet. And so between this day and that. In our worry. In our weariness. In our failures. And in our fallenness. In our struggles with hope. We are to trust in him. And I think that we should be particularly mindful of this as we come into the season that we are nearing. It is November. It will soon be December in that season of Advent. That season that reminds us of what it is to wait for deliverance. That season that reminds us that there was a time for God's people between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the Gospels when hundreds of years went by with fear and worry and anxiety and hopelessness. But God delivered his people. One of the books I enjoy reading during that Advent season is Hidden Christmas. It's a book by Tim Keller. He says it this way. 
You cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even be forgetting his promises, but when his promises come true, and they will come true, they always burst the banks of what you imagine. May we trust in him as we wait May we trust in Him as we grow weary. May we trust in Him as we fear and as we're anxious. May we trust in Him. If you would pray to that end with me, friends. Father God, I do pray that our trust and our hope would be in Christ. In this world with devils filled that threatens to undo us, may our hope and our trust be in Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who's yet to put their hope and trust in Jesus that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Lord, I pray for those here who perhaps put their trust in Christ long ago, but they have grown weary and fearful and anxious and worried. Lord, I pray that you would give them a peace today that surpasses all understanding. And that their hope, that our hope, would be in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you will stand together as we come into this time of response. And as we respond, we're going to worship together and we're going to sing. I'll be down front. I'd be glad to pray with you, counsel with you. If you have questions about the gospel, if perhaps God's leading you today to come and publicly profess Christ as your Lord to start the process of baptism and church membership, or if you just need somebody to pray with you, then I'll be here. Others are available as well, and we invite you to come.